we are live. Uh, what's up, everyone? Whoever's watching, this is going to be an interview with Stefan Kinsella. Should be epic. He's going to be here in a couple minutes, and it should be great. All right, and I've got my OBS recording as well, so we have like a physical copy. Uh, I'll record the Zoom. It says my internet connection is unstable. What's this about? We started live a bit early. Um, you can tell it's going to be here in a couple minutes. It'll be fun. Uh, okay. Yo, Glyph, um, put this in the Discord, the announcement. Uh, uh what? Like, in the, show this on the volunteer's hand in Discord. Yeah, hold on. I can't even add everyone, bro. You can't? No. <laughs> Uh, well, that's interesting. Oh. Great. My, the internet guy coming to fix my internet was supposed to be here an hour ago. Mm -hmm. He's running an hour late. So my internet might cut out in the middle of this. All right. I'll we'll take over then and talk about it. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I want to get my uh, thing out of the way first. Copy too. I, I want, I want you to get my thing out of the way first and then you can go through the itinerary. We'll start with like thoughts on like objective law and like the minerals facing objective this year in the state. Uh, make sure he's not in the waiting room. Yeah, I know. I have my questions up also. If I see when he comes in right away. Where's everyone else in the volunteer haven at? Good question. I don't know. Send the thing again. Tell everybody to join. Here. All right. Okay. Hello. Welcome in. Uh, I would like to welcome everybody. We would like to introduce Mr. Uh, uh, is it Stephen Kinsella or Stefan? Stefan, can you hear me? Ste yeah, yes, sir. Yep. Yes, sir. Yep. We would like to introduce Mr. Stefan Kinsella and thank him for coming here today. Mr. Kinsella is an Austro-Libertarian legal theorist. He is founder and executive editor of the Libertarian Papers, founder and director of the Center for the Study of Innovative Freedom, a member of the editor board of Reason Papers, and much more. Mr. Kinsella, again, thank you for coming. If you'd like to give an intro, you can. Uh, no, I'm fine. I'm a, I'm a patent attorney and a libertarian writer here in Houston, Texas, and uh, just enjoying this uh, crisp uh, winter day. And Happy to talk to you guys about whatever you want to chat about. Awesome. So uh, we we will have some hopefully some some more guys uh, joining in here. But I, I know when we emailed, we had talked about the limited government guys and the objective law. But I've actually uh, I, I I've come up with uh, something today uh, in preparing for this interview that I really wanted to 
run by you to make sure we had time for it, if that was all right. It's in regards to argumentation ethics. Sure, anything. Okay. So um, are you familiar with uh, ethical intuitionism? Mm, yeah, a little bit. Okay, so uh, for example, um, Michael Humer has expanded upon it in his book, Ethical Intuitionism, and it's a uh, meta-ethical standpoint that uh, 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 evaluative property or evaluative statements uh, are not necessarily or reducible to non-evaluative statements. And this gets around the is-ought uh, problem because you can just say you have an intuition, say um, murder is bad. And you're justified in believing this intuition so long as you are not provided with any further justification that this appearance, this intuition is wrong. Um, I, I, I could go more into that, but uh, that's just like the, the basis of it. So um, I, I understand that argumentation ethics, as, as, as it stands right now, uh, as far as I know with you and Hoppe have uh, agreed that it, it cannot bridge the is-ought gap. Uh, that it is, we, you can say that to argue against these things would be a performative contradiction, but it's still not within the realm of a, a normative, like, ought statement, right? Right. Um, okay. And I'm familiar, I'm familiar generally with Humor's view. I haven't read his book. Um, I don't tend to, I, I agree with his conclusions, mostly, which are mostly anarchist, pragmatic anarchist, uh, except he's strangely, uh, if I recall, he's not uh, very good on, or he, it's not decisive about intellectual approach. Strange to me for right uh, a principled uh, a principled uh, co uh, you know th thoughtful anarchist thinker to libertarian to not be good on IP. And I think my friend David Gordon is also an intuitionist. I don't know if he talks about it much, but he's told me that. Okay. Um, so yeah, um, I, I, uh, if you want to know, uh, uh, the, go ahead. So. This was just my uh, bringing argumentation ethics into the normative realm through ethical intuition. So I can say, for example, I have an ethical intuition that peaceful resolution is good. This is a normative statement. Uh, this need not be reduced to any descriptive statements about the world because I have this intuition a priori. Uh, I am justified in believing this uh, position so long as I am not provided with any justification otherwise. This would bring argumentation ethics into the normative world as I am justified in believing my intuitions unless I am presented with a reason to doubt my intuition. However, the only way to come to a truth claim is through argumentation. Therefore, to reject my intuition that peaceful conflict resolution is good, you would have to use peaceful conflict resolution, thus you are implicit, implicitly using an intuition that this is the proper way of reaching a truth claim, thus contradicting yourself. Thus far, argumentation ethics has been non-normative, as you and both uh, Hoppe, you can't get across the is-ought. However, intuitionism doesn't have this problem, as it is dualist, a dualist position holding that we can make evaluative claims that are not reducible to natural properties or non-evaluative claims. Uh, so I believe that if I, if I have this intuition that, uh, for example, initiation of forces is wrong normatively, uh, that uh, in order to, for me to come to a, a further conclusion that this intuition was wrong, you would have to be engaging in argumentation, uh, which in, in I, which would be able to unable to provide me with justification that my intuition is wrong, uh, and this is this is completely normative. This is uh, uh, initiation of force is wrong. We ought not to initiate force. Well, I think that's right. Um, the way I look at, it, I don't know if the concept of intuition is rigorously defined. Um, I think an intuition is just another word for your preferences. Um, I think there's many ways 
to get to the sort of psychological and other reasons that we are libertarians or that we prefer these things, I think it's you can you could you could explain it empirically in psychological or in sociological or in evolutionary terms. Right? We're a social species, and for various reasons, we tend to develop empathy, which is that we value our lives by by virtue of being evolved to be a type of life form which seeks to procreate and you know preserve its own life. So we're naturally self-interested. But we humans are social and we value other people as well. That's so I think you can explain that as empathy. Why we have that is interesting, but it's not really relevant. It's just the fact that we do. Not everyone does. There are certain, I would call them defective humans or outliers or outlaws that are psychopaths or sociopaths or politicians who uh, who don't don't have any much or any value on others' uh, well-being, and they're willing to uh, to use them as means, right? So I guess the question is, how do you justify? I wouldn't say that you're you're justified in in believing in intuition as a first approximation or anything. I don't think it's a justification. I think it's a starting point for the values that you hold. Um, if you prefer peace and prosperity of of humanity as a whole, that means you have some empathy towards their circumstances. Why you hold that, I don't know. I guess you can call that an intuition, but. This is what you can point to when you're trying to establish a higher level set of norms. You can point to lower level norms, which I sometimes call grund norms or ground norms, following the terminology of Hans Kelsen, a legal theorist. Um, and the, what, what, what argumentation ethics does is it tries to show that these lower level values are undeniably accepted by everyone who participates in discourse itself. So I guess what you could say to reformulate the humor type view or the intuitionism view is that um, when anyone engages in peaceful discourse trying to decide which high-level interpersonal political norms we should adopt, that is, which laws we favor and which we think are just or fair, um, we all come into that arena because of a reason because we, for some reason, prefer peace, prefer to find a solution that allows peace to, to reign, allows us to be cooperative. And you could call that your intuitions, which drives you to, to that level of discourse in the first place. So I don't think that – and I don't even think consequentialism is incompatible with, with uh, this argumentation ethics view either. Um, I think they all merge together, and I would I would look at ethical intuitionism as just something like that. But again, I haven't read uh, this book. One thing that uh, stuck out to me is, is you said that these uh, your intuitions would be somewhat of like a preference. This is like a non that would be like a non cognitivist like uh, point of view, whereas uh, like intuition and intuitionism falls under the realm of it is is it is cognitive or a cognitivist um, meta ethical position. And humor goes into why these things can't just be our our preferences about things, and why these. Uh, I, I mean, I because I'm just like reading through the book. Uh, I, I I guess I wouldn't be able to. You know, they say you don't know something well enough unless you can explain it in simple terms. I don't know right. if I could uh, best explain it in simple terms right now. Like I said, I, I really came to this realization within the last like three hours. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, so like this idea that it's like people's preferences would be like a non-cognitive point of view. Okay. Uh, which, which I, I don't hold that. Uh, I think like linguistically we can look at things and just typically the non-cognitivist position is uh, 
uh, pretty untenable as, as far as when we make statements such as this is bad. Uh, it, it, it can't be just, uh, if you were saying, well, I, I, I think that this is bad, you were either abandoning non-cognitivism for subjectivism or uh, this, these uh, things cannot be true. Um, but the reason uh, I, 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 I guess, well, hold on a sec. We, we stop. Wait, pause for a second. Um, let me ask you this, because um, I think there's something possibly to this. Um, um, I'm not sure rigorously what it means to say this is bad, because sometimes the connotation is you're saying it's some kind of objective fact about the world, mm-hmm. right? Um, that's why I think it's, it's more rigorous and more precise to say it, it is true. It is accurate to, to talk about what people prefer because that, that can be demonstrated, right, or can be explained in a in a in a um, in a, uh, a clear way. Uh, uh, because we, we we demonstrate what we prefer by our actions, right? We demonstrate a preference. Mm-hmm. So it is true that we we have values and we have preferences. That is true, um, right? Whether and I don't know if that's the same as saying I I label or describe this as bad. To me, that's just another way of saying I don't like that or I don't prefer mm-hmm. that. Uh, yes. Yeah, so let's see. Um, yeah, I well, hold on one sec. Um, okay. Um, yeah. Again, so like uh, I, I would have to. Uh, I mean, uh, this. It seems that you're taking like the non-cognitivist position, which is which is fine. And like I said, I'm not uh, well read enough to on on metaethics to provide you right this moment why that is uh, wrong or why I believe that is wrong. Uh, but I'm not really taking so- a position. I'm not really taking a position. I'm just trying to explain. I mean, I'm not. I guess I'm not clear what your question is. So yeah, I was. So I was just trying to formulate uh, like uh, argumentation ethics in a way beyond just. Uh, uh, well, I was trying to formulate it in a way that uh, overcomes the the isot problem, for example. Uh, so, like in in saying that we have these things, uh, like uh, this, say we have an intuition that enjoyment is better than suffering, or if A is better than B and B is better than C and A is better than C, or it is unjust to punish a person for a crime he did not commit. These are just uh, examples he gives in the book, right? Um, and he says that we uh, are justified in believing these intuitions just as much because he employs what he calls phenomenal conservatism, which is just okay. the basic premise that um, we are justified in believing appearances. This does not mean that the appearances necessarily are reality. Uh, so, for example, if I see an optical illusion, I am justified in, in, in believing in this uh, illusion until I am presented with a further appearance uh, appearances can only be overwritten by future uh, or, or, or further appearances, that this was in fact an optical illusion and that that was not really reality. This does not mean that this impure, uh, appearance doesn't I mean, no, no longer exists. It's just that you no longer believe in this appearance. So any, so he holds intuitions that if you don't um, believe in uh, the justifi- being justified in belief and intuitions, uh, then there is no reason to be justified justified in your belief of your experience and the uh, justified in the right. belief of your introspection. So if you uh, don't employ his phenomenal conservatism, he says that you are committed to a global skepticism. Uh, so it, yeah, so he just mm-hmm. gets to this that there are some things that we know intuitively. And my whole point in this was to try and bring argumentation um, into the uh, normative realm. Well, but let's talk about what you just said. Um, 
and again, I'm going by what your your description and what I kind of mm -hmm. sense about some of his um, or this theory. Uh, my my suspicion is well. First of all, I'm heavily influenced in my epistemology by Ayn Rand and and David Kelly and their theory of concepts and uh, and 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 knowledge and their views on skepticism and things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and also by Mises and his dualism, and also by the, the kind of related type of uh, in terms. I suspect that humor is really not steeped in all this and that he's doing sort of a uh, reinventing the wheel kind of amateur's approach to all this. And I don't think I agree with what you just said. Um, for example, I don't, I, I think is correct and that we are justified, if you want to call it that. I, I tend to use the word justify for justifying normative views, but I think we're justified in believing the evidence of the senses for various reasons, which David Kelly um, um, Adam Brates in his in his book, The Evidence of the Senses, and also in a great lecture series, um, I think it's called The Foundations of Knowledge. It's available on YouTube. It's from the from the 1980s. Um, but I don't think that translates to uh, to normative views at all. Um, I think what happens is that we tend to be an uh, a social species, and we tend to be empathetic and value others, and we have had hundreds of years, thousands of years of human society and tradition and thinking, and we figured some things out by now. Uh, so these intuitions are just sort of the the layman's or the average uh, – it's sort of like most people now have a dim sense that communism or socialism or central planning can't work because they saw they saw the Soviet Union fall in the 90s. They don't have a deep theoretical understanding like Mises did, but they have – of a dim understanding of the unworkability of socialism and the the relative superiority of the free market. Okay, so I think by the same token, most of us in our private lives have these basic civilized values like peace and prosperity, and we sense that it's wrong to punish an innocent person for a crime because we've we've had experience with this over the over the ages. You can call that an intuition if you want, but. I, and I think you're justified in going by custom and the received wisdom that has undergirded society because it has worked to let us be civilized to a certain degree. Um, but I don't think that rejecting the idea that you're justified in, in, in holding your, your basic normative intuitions um, to be presumptive just just because they're in, into I don't think rejecting that idea entails a skepticism because you can you can still be a non-skeptic in the field of the uh, of sense data and perception and cognitive understanding of the world right um, so we sense the world and so like the illusion example you gave I don't think that it is possible to have a false perception right it's not possible so when you perceive a stick bent in the water, we call it an illusion, but we only call it an illusion because um, the form in which we perceive it is unusual. It's not the normal way we perceive a stick. If you look at a stick, normally it seems straight, but if it's if it's half bent, if it has half dipped in water, it's refracted because of the laws of the physics and optics, and it appears to be bent, but it's not. But you're still perceiving the stick, and you're perceiving it as bent because that's the only way you could perceive it because of the nature of reality. And the physical nature of our senses. So I don't think you are. It's it's not possible to perceive the stick in any other way, and you are perceiving the stick. 
and it's not just an appearance. It's the form in which you perceive the stick given the nature of our senses. So I don't think that lends any support, though, to the fact that we have intuitions about what's right and wrong, um, and those could be presumed to be true. I think that uh, the, uh, the objectivity and the lack of skepticism and even relativism of, of our of the, of, of the validity of our senses and our conceptual faculty um, doesn't translate over to the normative realm. That, that would be my first, my first take on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I do believe he addresses it. While you were talking, I was trying to flip through and find exactly where he talks about this specifically, because I do remember him uh, talking about somebody who would have the objection that, well, we, uh, we, have, uh, we could have intuitions about uh, descriptive things. Like, I can intuitively think that uh, um, uh, one line is longer than another, but in reality, it, it's, it's not. Um, and, and hold on a second. So the way the objectivist would say that is, is that um, – your percepts cannot be in error, but your concepts can. Concepts, of, uh, well, they're high-level concepts that our, our our conscious brain integrates, and a mistake can. So, I see a stick in the water. Soon. That of, cog of mistaken. So it's likewise if you see two lines and they're drawn in such a way as to confuse you at the conceptual level, that's just a conceptual error. Um, now, intuitions, of course, can underlie also uh, scientific inquiry or mathematical inquiry, whatever. Like you're trying to solve a problem, you're trying to understand a law of nature, you're trying to formulate a causal relationship and explore it with empirical methods and also with with intuition. Yeah, you could have an intuition that, that hey, gravity gravity makes things fall at the same rate instead of different rates. Like your first intuition might be that a heavier object would fall faster than a lighter object, but you do the test and 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 and, and that 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 hypothesis is not confirmed; it's falsified. So I, then I you actually have to, like that you. Oh, I'm sorry. You have to um, go ahead. Oh, I like that you bring up that specifically okay. because uh, that's actually an example that he gives specifically in the book is that. Um, uh, again, it's not that we are uh, justified in uh, just – so, for example, if I have an intuition that murder is not wrong, uh, if I am provided with further justification that murder well, is in fact wrong, well, then I would no longer be justified in believing that murder is wrong. Uh, so, and he talks about the example of specifically, uh, this might have been in one – I don't know if it's in this book specifically. It might have been in one of his papers that I just read, but um, – about like a, a ball dropping and, and testing it, and it might seem you might have this intuition that this should drop faster, uh, but in reality it doesn't. Well, then you are no longer justified in believing the initial uh, appearance that uh, your intuition, you know, led you to believe these things. Um, I'm not able to find here specifically. The, but but the part but, of but hold on a second. Go ahead. In, in in well, let's let's go back to that for a second. In that case, I would say that. So in this case, I would go more with the Hoppian Hans Hermann Hoppe's sort of neo-Kantian. But a realist, a realistic neo-Kantian, not an idealistic um, Kantianism. But this idea that uh, all uh, of the natural sciences and causal inquiries really rest upon an a priori base, right? You can call them intuitions, but they rest upon certain assumptions. Like, for example, if you if you if you're trying to formulate a causal law 
and you're trying to do ex experiments like the, 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 the scientific method, right? Following the scientific method, trying to do an experiment to falsify or to, to confirm your, your hypothesis or your theory about what causal laws are there, you're presupposing that the universe is governed by causes in the first place, by cause and effect. And that is not testable in itself, right? The scientific method is not testable. It's outside of that. So it all rests upon a priori theories. Um, now, I would say that from what you described, what he's talking about, about uh, if, you, if you have an intuition or a belief that murder is not justified, and then you have some other belief that contradicts it, the reason you're not justified in holding that other belief is because you, you a priori know that contradicts. It's just a filtering mechanism. You're, you're, out, you're, you're eliminating uh, two statements as being both true because they contradict each other, and you've got to choose one. But I'm not sure why he knows which one you choose from intuitionism. Your first um, intuition or your second, uh, your second proposal. Right, I, I see what you mean. Um, I, I, I'm sure. Let's see. Oh, this is not taking it. Intuition is really a misconclusion. Um, does he? Yeah, let me I ask you a question. Does he up, rely yeah, any? Uh, does he rely at all in his book on Jan Lester, J.C. Lester's um, theories? I can't remember mm -hmm. if he does. Not that I'm not that I'm aware of. I haven't seen that uh, name mentioned here. Yeah, yeah. Jan Lester has another anarchist, but he—he's more. I forgot what word he uses um, to describe his view. He rejects—he rejects justificationism per se. He thinks you should. Um, oh God! If you—if you look, his book is a uh, Anarchy and Leviathan or something like that. And again, he's—he's he's bad on IP too. It, whenever an anarchist, libertarian anarchist, is bad on IP. I automatically suspect something's wrong with their theory because if it doesn't lead them to the correct view on that issue, then there's something flawed in their whole foundation. But he he talks about impositionism rather than um, rather than uh, aggression, and he thinks that you have to uh, propose something and it can be tested by reasoning, something like that. But he he he's totally opposed to the idea of justificationism. Um, so he rejects consequentialism and uh, the more deontological type reasoning. And I can't remember if humor borrows from that or not from Lester's uh, from from what you just explained to me. I would I would say that he doesn't. In this book, actually, specifically, he doesn't bring up like liber. This book is not at all about libertarianism or any of that. This is just my own. Uh, from going through the book so far and uh, reading about this ethical intuitionism, the, then trying to uh, apply it to argumentation ethics, most of the thing, most of the things you brought up, uh, I believe, are addressed here. However, I'm of course uh, having having issue finding them on the spot. You know, it's a it's a pretty big book, and uh, I've got a lot of stuff marked here. However, I I, I don't want to take too much time on this. I would like to get to the to the other stuff. I appreciate you know, uh, sure. uh, talking about this. So. Um, yeah, I guess we can uh, move on to. Uh, I, I find uh, interesting what the, so this uh, Randian concept, or um, these people that have been calling themselves radical capitalists. Uh, they they reject the term minarchist uh, because they uh, don't like the. But they they're also people like essentially Randians, but they don't believe in the objectivist philosophy. Um, and so they have you, this wait 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 who 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 are you referring to? This this is just like a, another a group of. Um, people on you know social media going around currently like we are the you know the group voluntarist haven. There's another group of uh, um, you know young individuals going around you know with these new ideas right. 
uh, and just like limited government people in general. Uh, but they have like this concept of objective law. And they reject the, the term anarchy, though. Right, because they don't they don't like uh, they reject self ownership. Uh, like uh, they don't like Nozick's uh, view on the the locking. They they I mean they essentially take uh, Rand's standpoint on on rights. They take Rand's standpoint on limited government. They take Rand's standpoint on just about everything except objectivism, um, and they they come to this limited government conclusion. Uh, so you have this. Uh, in other words, the, they're like they're like the Libertarian Party. In other words, they're just they're just liber, they're just the, they're just libertarians who are not anarchists. Is that what you mean? Correct. I, I would. Yeah. I, I, guess, I guess so. Um, so they reject um, libertarianism because they believe that it lacks uh, philosophical backing. It's kind of their well, justification that's, yeah, for. Well, well, that's what Ayn Rand always said, right? That's what the Randians yeah, always yeah. say. Yeah, it's a Randian concept. Yeah. Right. So my, my point here is that uh, Ayn Rand defines objective law as essentially, um, uh, but you know the direct consequences of your action. So I know if I steal from somebody, there will be this specific uh, uh, punishment for this action. And I, I, I don't think that, that excludes, you know, contract law under an, uh, like an anarchist society. You come onto my property, we contractually agree that you won't break these uh, obligations. If you do break these obligations, you are to uh, compensate me in this way. I would consider that to be objective. Uh, you know before beforehand what the consequences of your actions will be when you come onto my property. I, I think their concept of objective law actually fits into within the uh, the realm of uh, an anarchist society. Uh, well, so I used to be a member of the TAFL, the Association for Objective Law, when I was an objectivist. Um, so I'm I, by objective law, I think they mean a couple of things. Um, in one sense, the predictability of law um, is one feature of it, but even Hayek talked about that. Um, but you can be a statist and be in favor of objective law in that sense, like Hayek was. Hayek believed in all sorts of um, statist laws as long as they're general and they're predictable, so you can adjust your affairs according to it, which is you know, if you live in North Korea, you, you, know, you live in objective law because you know what not to do to avoid going to prison. Um, but in the other sense of objective law, I think they mean that laws that can be objectively justified, and in that loose sense, I think we agree with that. The problem is they believe that you have to have a central state and ultimately a one-world government to have objective law, and they also believe in legislation. They don't they – don't, they're perfectly fine with – not just with, with decentralized common law means of generating and developing the law, but they're also fine with legislation. In fact, I had a debate one time with Murray Frank, who was Ayn Rand's lawyer, um, because they're in favor of intellectual property, and I observed in a in an it was a, it was in a, a, a little debate in the pages of um, uh, an objectivist newsletter, and David Kelly had written I think it was David Kelly's group, and David Kelly had written something pro IP, and I wrote something about how. It's, a, it's unjust for the following reasons, and um, because it relies upon creationism, which we can get into or, or I have gotten into before, but also because it depends upon legislation because patent and copyright never arose on the common law and could not conceivably arise on the common law as a private law that develops organically and naturally. In other words, it's not a natural right. It's an intervention into the natural legal order and the free market system by a bunch of – just by a, a committee of – bureaucrats who issue their decrees, which is what a legislature is. And Murray Frank said, Kelly said, nothing wrong with legislation 
to come in and correct the common law when it's a non-objective law. So they're totally in favor of legislation, which to my mind is the, is the, analog, the analog to central planning of the economy. Um, let, there is no reason to expect any legislation to ever be just, and in fact, it's usually not just. Right. That's actually one of my uh, biggest contentions. Except as insofar as it's a costly development system. Yeah, that's it. Oh, sorry. You were you were cutting out, so I thought you had uh, stopped. I apologize. Uh, yeah, I was going to say that's one of my biggest contentions with uh, uh, with uh, besides like uh, okay. obvious obvious ones with like a limited uh, government and such, but uh, is the existence of intellectual property. Um, but also, uh, so we've discussed this with um, uh, with uh, them before, and they they obviously they don't consider that their government maintains the initiation of force, um, which I find interesting because. If the government doesn't maintain the initiation of force, then it presumably cannot stop alternative uh, agencies from arising to enforce uh, people the the laws. Essentially, they 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 would they must maintain the initiation of force, thus violating property rights that they so claim to be protecting. Um, yeah. Or 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 it's not a state. So uh, we've kind of come. They're to only the um. They're all, let me let me go into that because that's interesting. They're they're only object. I've objected to that, and others have objected to that, and their only response is that it's necessary. I mean David Kelly has a, a great article in the Freeman from the 70s. I think it's called uh, The Necessity of Government. Um, it's about as good of a case as you could make for the objectivist view of, 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 of the government. But because just saying necessarily commits aggression, then now they're condoning aggression. And just all they're really saying is sometimes aggression is necessary. But that's what statists believe, and that's what criminals believe. So I, I think of it this way: if the state has a definition, and we can agree on some definitions, but the state has to do one of two things to be a state: it has to either tax, or it has to outlaw competitors. And it always does both, but either one implies the other because even if you didn't outlaw competitors, if you could tax the population, you could still drive the competitors out of business because you have a competitive advantage, just like the public schools or dominate the private schools in the U.S. because most people can't afford to pay twice. Um, or if you can outlaw competitors but you don't tax, you can still effectively tax because you can charge a monopoly price for the service, which is like a tax. So basically a monopoly on – Law and order and, and 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 defense and justice is is equivalent to attacks and vice versa. I see. I, and they I, believe in one or the other. By the way, David Kelly um, uh, and Jan Helfeld. I, I talked to David Kelly at Porkfest about seven eight years ago, and you know how the objectivists say that they're for voluntary tax, not for for actual taxation. But David Kelly and Jan Helfeld admitted that. They think Ayn Rand was wrong on that, and basically you have to have taxes, and taxes are justified. So in the end, objectivists do believe in taxation, which of course is theft. Mm. So yeah, in the in the something you brought up to me just now, or uh, that I had not thought about at all, is because the way they conceive of it is like um, at least the people we've been talking to as well. If somebody breaks into your home, you know, you you call the police and then you pay them. That's how you pay for the services. I didn't even think about the fact that well, if they're the if they are the sole competitor. Or um, uh, that that they will essentially charge whatever they want. They can charge the monopoly price, and that it 
could be conceived of as as taxation because say like the market equilibrium rate for the service would have been like uh fifteen dollars and they can charge you twenty dollars and because they can't they can prevent any com uh, competition from coming into existence you